And if you would now turn in your Bibles to Psalm 147, you'll find the opening words of this psalm on page 525 in the Bibles that are in the pews. And as we did last week, we are continuing into the Hallel Psalms, that is a particular section of Hallel Psalms, the Hallelujah Chorus at the conclusion of the whole Psalter, sometimes called the Great Hallel. And again, I would draw your attention before we pray and then read to observe how Psalms 146 through 150 begin and end. They all begin and end the same way. Praise the Lord. 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 So what are you supposed to do? Praise the Lord. That's right. Let's start to praise him by praying together. Lord our God, we are thankful that you call us to praise, that you give us good reason to praise, that there is in yourself all worthiness, glory, delight, every cause of praise. And so we would honor you and give you that which you deserve. We pray that you would fill our hearts with a sense of that to which you've called us, that of which you're worthy. Give to us praising hearts as we draw near to hear your word in this wonderful psalm of praise. May we become people who praise. We ask, O Lord, as we have just sung, that you would speak to us because your servants, our God, are listening. Hear and help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 147. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God. For it is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion, for he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of the wheat. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters hoarfrost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. 
Praise the Lord. Here's a text that brings us the full spectrum of gospel comfort. And maybe in a way is the accompaniment to the the song or rather the parable of the prodigal son. Blessing upon blessing for those who are far away and for those who are near. I'd like you to notice as we consider this calling to praise the Lord of love, I'd like you to notice first from both verses 1 and 11, which are some of the hinge points, if you like, of the psalm, this first, that it is fitting to praise the Lord. Notice there in verse 1, it is good to sing praises to our God. It is pleasant. A song of praise is fitting. That's how it's translated in the ESV. And all of these come together, kind of coalesce in that single word that's translated there at the end of verse 1. It's fitting. It's appropriate. And that's not the first time that the Psalms have spoken this way about God's praises. It's fitting. Psalm 92 says, for instance, It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High. Then verse 4, For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. There are reasons it is suitable to praise the Lord. And we are here convinced, we're persuaded, we are meant to have our souls taught to be convicted. This is the right thing. This is, in fact, the only thing that fits. God's nature, God's gracious work fits with praise. That's the only response that really fits. When you think about things that fit, maybe you think about trying on a pair of jeans at the store, and maybe they don't fit. Or maybe they do fit, and then you have to go to an event, and you have to debate, do the jeans fit the event? Not everything is appropriate. And we have puzzles. People enjoy puzzles. Does this fit? Which one isn't the same as the others? Which one doesn't fit? For things to be suitable or to be fitting, they have to agree with, they have to conform to something else. And you can hear this in the tone of Proverbs 15.23. To make an apt, an appropriate, a fitting answer is a joy to a man, and a word in season, how good it is. There is nothing better, nothing more fitting, than the right answer to the question or to the situation. And you notice that the way the proverb puts this, an answer is a kind of response to something else. Well, the Psalms are filled with this sort of repetition that you find here in Proverbs 15.23. To make an apt answer is a joy, a word in season, how good. Answers are meant to fit. So it is here in the psalm, even in verse 1. Notice the parallelism that's here, the, the poetic connections. It's good to sing praises. It's pleasant. It's fitting. This repetition, this echoing of the perfect response to God has to be repeated in triplicate so that we pick up on it. There's a right way to respond to the living God. In other words, we need to be a people who fit with the glory of God. Now, I don't know about you. If you feel like you really fit with God's immense, eternal glory this evening, but that is what you are meant to be. Not the sort of puzzle piece that you're trying to get into the slot and it just doesn't fit and finally you jam it in there and, well, you know, Make it work. That's not what you're meant to be. You and I are meant to fit, to respond, to be the answer, in a sense, to the glory of God. 
singing praise to God is a response to him. We reply in the Psalms, in the hymns of the church, we reply in echo back what God is, what God has done, and lift up his praise. It is always fitting to praise the Lord. If you're ever at a loss for words, just start praising the Lord because it fits. Somewhere, somehow, in the right way, you and I are meant to fit with God's glory by praise. Now, as we think about this, this is kind of the the background against which we find the psalm laid out, the fitness of praise. I want to just note a couple of things, four of them, as we come into the psalm. And the first is that worship is a response to God. And sometimes our worship is referred to as a kind of dialogue or Worship is dialogical, a conversation between God and man, between God and the creatures he redeems. There is a kind of back and forth, a give and take, call and response, parallelism, a poetry of a living relationship, showing what God has done. This is what we do in worship. We echo and respond in corporate worship and in the whole of our life. And so we ought to always be asking when we come to worship, when we think about a theology of worship, what does it say, what does our worship say we believe and know about God? What is my life saying that I know about God? What, does my, what do my words indicate in worship and out of worship? In other words, we don't just do anything that we like. We're called to a specific response. The glory of God is that to which we ought to conform and be conformed in praise. But also a second observation about the fitness of praise. Because our praise corresponds to God, our praises make God known. If you would know God, you will not know him rightly anywhere but in his praise. You can't know God apart from his praises. And it's in the church where he is praised where you will learn who God really is. It is in a life of praise that you will discover the dimensions of his infinite worthiness. And so our life really in praise becomes the means of evangelism. Our words in worship are evangelistic, revealing who our saving God is. A third observation Praise makes us like Jesus. If we call and respond to God in praise, appropriate to his worthiness, as creatures who are made and being remade into his image, then we become like the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the singer of the Psalms and who is the very image, the exact imprint of the nature and the radiance of the glory of God. In praise, we become holy. We become like our Savior. Friends, if you want to be a godly Christian, this is where it begins. This is the only thing that fits with the God that we confess. Praise that makes us like God himself. But this is particularly an act of public worship, fourthly. We are to praise the Lord with all of his people. This is thematic throughout the Psalms. The psalms are meant to be sung in the, in the company of God's people, in worship, 
we are not only to respond personally and privately, but together, sanctifying grace, the sanctifying grace of praise, God works out and uses to conform us into the image of Jesus as we gather in the assembly of his people. So what is God doing right now? He is conforming and shaping you as you are here worshiping tonight, pressing you in to the image of Jesus, and he does that by making you a people of praise. Well, notice, I mentioned verses 1 and 11, that at the heart of the psalm is, if you like, the pivot of all that takes place in it. Verse 11 concludes with that wonderful word in Hebrew, chesed, the steadfast covenant love of God. The Lord doesn't take pleasure, verse 10, in the strength of horses or the legs of a man. He takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. God expresses his love that leads to praise, the fitting response to love. God expresses his love to you by way of covenant. By a covenant, not just a formal establishment of a sort of a contract, but a formal declaration of love. It's easy sometimes to think about biblical covenants as if they were just kind of far off and following ancient patterns and kind of things into which God has somehow managed to shove his love so that it kind of cramps into there and then we have to... Friends, God's covenants are his determined affection for you. Think of what it says in Luke 22, that the blood of Christ establishes the new covenant, not brand new, but the renewal of all those covenants that came before. God's love revealed to his people, his electing mercy given to generation after generation is refreshed, is renewed, is perfected, is completed in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other declaration of love that is so perfect and worthy and fitting for us to praise. And so the psalm, at its very heart, stresses the covenant of grace. You can see this not only in the use of the word steadfast love, but also God's precious name, Yahweh, his specific care for his chosen people, Israel, the benefits God grants in his covenant. We'll consider those in a little while. The observation of special acts, particular acts of his electing grace to his people. This is a psalm, in other words, that rejoices in the covenant of grace. God's particular love for his people, his chesed, his covenant, is love. Affections, redeeming actions, words of bond, commitment, and obligation, this is how he communicates his covenant. And there's a structure to that, of course, just as there would be if you attended a wedding and heard marriage vows. Think of those words that many of us have uttered, for richer, for poor, in sickness and health, to have, to hold, until death do us part. There are specific requirements and obligations to which God binds himself in his steadfast love. And these he describes in Deuteronomy 11 as blessing and cursing. Listen to the words there 
of Moses. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you obey the commands of the Lord your God, which I command you today. And the curse if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known. Let me boil this down. God promises, because he loves you, that you will, with himself, enjoy all other blessings if you continue in his love. But should you depart from his love, then you will experience the dearth and the lack, not only of God himself, but of all those blessings that he is determined not to give in any true and lasting way, except with himself. He is determined to love us, in other words, so well that we would not have his gifts without him. And so when we think about God's covenant and the fact that he is determined to bless in love, we might ask the question, how is it that in a covenant of love there could be cursing? Isn't that kind of an interesting question? How could there be cursing? Again, because God would pursue us in his love so that we would not be satisfied with lesser things. He's a jealous God, and he will bring upon us all the lack that we have apart from him, should we turn from his love. Now, this is kind of background that we've gone through thus far, and now we need to come to the body of the psalm to appreciate the comfort of the gospel. Verses 20, uh, sorry, verse 2 through 20, the beginning of verse 20, I want you to see how the Lord brings back and blesses us in his covenant of love. Look first, verses 2 through 11, how he brings us back. We've just been considering what the nature of God's covenant is. When you think about God's covenant and you think about the curse of the covenant, and the obligations that he presses upon us to abide in him, to abide in his love, it's easy to see that we haven't held up our part of the covenant. It's easy to recognize that throughout the history of God's elect, loved people, Israel, they didn't hold up the covenant. They did not continue in his love. They were bound to him, but they continually went after other gods. A habitual, a perpetual adultery, refusing his law, going their own way, until at last, and you can tell this is coming, right? Until at last they get not the blessing, they get what? They get the curse of the covenant. Listen to how that is described in Psalm 147. In these opening words, we have categories of the curse. Notice how Jerusalem, verse 2, has been broken down. It must be built up. Israel has been cast out. This is why they must be gathered. God's people are brokenhearted, which is why they must be healed. They are wounded, and so they must be bound up. They are also, verse 6, humbled and even afflicted that he might at last bring them to himself. Do you see that this is not how things are supposed to be? God's covenant broken brings brokenness upon us as Israel experienced the Lord's curse in every way. Lost fellowship with God, 
They lose in exile their land, their nation, their children, homes, farms, cattle, fields, fig trees, vines. These vineyards that God had blessed them with, the temple, the worship of God, how much they lost. These are the very things that God said he would do in bringing upon them his curse, in removing from them the blessing of his love. Can you see that? So the backdrop of the psalm is a steadfast love that continues with the people of God, even though we are by nature people who break covenant with him, who will not keep faith, who do not love him as we should. This is the consequence of sin, isn't it? And you can see here, maybe your own heart, at least at some times in your life, I trust you could say, I too have been brokenhearted. I too have been wounded. I too have been afflicted. And yet, and yet, at the center of it all was steadfast love. You see how God, in his bringing upon his people the hardship, the affliction, the heavy burden the absence of his benefits brings us to gospel logic. Here's the logic of the covenant. If you are experiencing as God's prodigal the discipline of God, if you're under the hardship of the covenant, if you're experiencing in some measure, not full, but in some measure his curse, then at least you are in covenant with him. A people that he has covenanted for himself, he will discipline and dissatisfy that he might at last satisfy us with his love. And if you are in covenant, if this is the reason for your troubles and afflictions, then there's hope for you. Because all you have to do in covenant with God is return to steadfast love. Love that has continued all through your brokenness, and your rebellion, all you must do is turn and hope in the God who has given his love to you in Christ. This is then not a declaration of how bad we are, but how truly amazing the grace of God is to bad people such as we are. His attitude is not hostility. He's not a demanding, never-satisfied God. He has love and favor determined and set upon us. He's absolutely going to restore his people and fulfill in himself the covenant that we have not kept. And through our union with Christ, bring us to the fullness of his love. So when you hear that word covenant in Scripture, think of this word chesed. Think of steadfast love. Not a bare contract. Think of affection, of determination, of commitment, of beauty, of delight. Think of Christ coming into the world to die for us who had no hope in ourselves. Again, this is covenant language. God brings back his exiles. He gathers his, his outcasts. And he brings not only his people back to the land, he makes things far better than they could have been before. 
covenantal language again. Notice how he describes his people. Even those he has exiled, verse 4, he determines the number of the stars. Isn't this how he speaks to Abraham? Abraham is called outside, out of his tent. He looks up and God says to him, look toward heaven, number the stars if you're able to number them. Can you number them? How many stars are there now? Even the best telescope at the, at, with the best mirrors that we've ever had can't measure the number of the stars. In every direction that you look, stars, stars, and more stars. The point is, Abraham, you can't count them. But God counts them. He counts all of his people. And he doesn't just put a number on you. You're one, you're two, you're three, four, five. Line up, guys. One of these days, you'll get what you're looking for. He names each one and puts us not only into a category in a spreadsheet, but into a relationship of love and delight. Isn't this glorious? The one who is the king of the stars comes in steadfast love to bind up the wounds that we have by our own disobedience brought upon ourselves. Do you see what the Lord does? He brings his people back. That's love. You know, you and I have limits, don't we? In fact, we're even taught by certain, certain books of, of a sort of Christian self-help nature that we ought to have boundaries. Now, I'm not negating the fact that we need to have boundaries. But we have our limits, and boy, we're going to make sure we don't go past them. That's it. You know, once you pass my love limit, <laughs> no hope for you. Praise God. There is no boundary to his love. It is always a love that brings us back into relationship. And so we see in the ministry of Christ him walking among the lame, the blind, the outcast, healing every disease, every sickness, taking away shame, removing every obstacle to fellowship, a mighty mercy of love. And this is enforced to us in the words of verses 7 through 9. The entire life cycle of food is here given to us. Here we are to praise the Lord because he covers the heavens with the clouds. The clouds are his own covering of the earth. There's rain that causes the grass to grow, which causes the beasts to be able to feed. And he even gives, and this is a sort of little surprising punchline to this little section. He even gives to ravens when they cry. Ravens, unclean beasts. Beasts that don't belong on any good Israelite's menu. No, he gives even to them. Even to those that are unclean, outside, lesser creatures. And the point is this. It's a, it's a continual reasoning here from lesser to great in this psalm. If he so cares for the grass of the field, isn't he going to care for you? If he so cares for ravens and beasts that he causes the rain to descend on the earth and the grass to grow, then won't he care for you even in the furthest reaches of your sin and bring you back. Because he delights. He delights not in strength, but in mercy. Those words in verses 10 through 11, speaking of strength, the strength of the horse, the legs of a man, these are the implements of power in the ancient world. This is how you get your army moving. This is how you accomplish your will with horses, with soldiers. And God takes no pleasure in that. It isn't strength that will bring you back into fellowship with God. It isn't anything that you and I have ever done or ever could do. It isn't any 
power, reputation, status that has brought us into fellowship with God. We were so far off that there was no strength in us at all. It is God's pleasure to show mercy, steadfast love to those who hope in him and wait upon him. We can rest in this. God is a God who brings his people back. He is determined to do this. This is the nature of his covenant. This is his love. Not that we get beyond the perimeter and he says, well, that's too far gone for me. But he brings us back. And he even, as it says in verse 2, builds the walls of Jerusalem. Covenant love. Covenant promise. Not a cold, unsympathetic, unfeeling determination. He does not just make a promise and care because he's made a promise. He makes a promise to you in Christ because he cares for you. I want to repeat that. Why has God made a covenant with you? Because he has a cold, sterile, unfeeling relationship with you? Not at all. Because he would have you know with absolute certainty the fullness of his affection and desire for you. He will not leave and he will not forsake us until he builds and establishes his wandering people. But so much better to come. This is the nature of the gospel, better and better. Notice verses 12 through 20, the blessings of his love. The direction of the psalm moves from that that kind of implication of trouble up to confidence and glory. Isn't that how the prodigal's dealt with? He comes back looking for the servants' quarters, and he's decked out with the best robe. He's given a ring. He's shod with shoes. He is celebrated. Brought back is not the full story of the gospel, in other words. Blessing beyond all comprehension is the true nature of gospel grace. And observe how that's worked out in the blessings of the covenant given to you here in verses 12 and following. Verse 13, he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of the wheat. This is what God is determined to do. This is what in covenant he has already done. That's kind of the implication of the text. This is what he has already done. This is your new life. Not a life of, okay, well, I made it into the servants' quarters. Now I just have to work my way back to the house. If I'm on my best behavior, maybe I can end this parole in just two years. And isn't that kind of the nature, isn't that kind of how we respond sometimes? When we know we've done wrong, we're confronted with our sin, and we say, well, I guess I need to go out to the doghouse for a while, and hopefully someday God will look on me again. Dear friend, the Lord does sometimes hide his face but he will never withhold his blessing. But bring us fully into all that Christ has secured, blessedness, peace, riches, security, all that is given to you in Christ. And again, notice how the creation itself enforces this. When you go out this evening, you will notice the word of the Lord running swiftly. It might not be this evening, but perhaps later this week, in that wonderful Glory of God in ice. 
in the descent of snow from the sky and icy, slippery sidewalks. Who is it that can understand the storehouses has entered into the storehouse of the snow and of the hail? Appreciate what the Lord says here, not only to Job in chapter 38, but as well to us in this psalm. There is no single point in all the creation, not even the smallest particles of inanimate matter, in which there is a simply automatic process. There are no automatic processes. There's only a personal God who works in regular, ordered, gracious ways. Now notice what the psalm is saying about this. Who can stand when God scatters all these detailed particles of ice, snow, frost, ice, down from the sky, down on the ground. Who can stand? That's not what you'd expect, I think, especially if you bear in mind Malachi chapter 3, when it speaks of the heat of God. Who can stand when he appears? He's like a refiner's fire. Who can stand before his heat? But you notice here, If you cannot stand before his heat, neither will you stand before his cold. You and I are not able to withstand the cold that God sends upon the earth. You could try to go out in shorts. You could try to disobey your mother's advice to put on a hat. But what do most of us in our wiser moments do? We just submit. It's cold outside. And we bundle up and we turn up the thermostat because God has commanded the ice. And who can uncommand it? You can't turn turn up the thermostat outside, although some people try by going to Florida. Isn't it really true that this is the nature of God's command, incapable of being turned back? And observe, it's actually the same idea here. As God has scattered the ice... Isn't that what he did with his exiles? He scattered his people. Who could undo that? Who could possibly undo the curse that he sends upon his people? Well, the answer is given to us right here. The God who who scattered them. And notice what it says. Such beauty. Really such beauty. If you hate the cold of winter, maybe this will make you appreciate it for once. He doesn't just scatter his ice. Verse 18 He sends out his word and he melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. There will be an end to winter. It's not always going to be winter and never Christmas. Dear friends, this is the power of his word. His word is not only determined to bring to pass what we call natural processes upon the earth, but to fulfill his word in covenant to us, a unique word commanded, he says in the psalm, to Jacob. Jacob. Just remember who Jacob is, right? What a deserving guy. I mean, he... he, probably gets all the awards and you know best man of the year right of course not jacob the ankle biter who is just this most undeserving and conniving fellow he commands his word to jacob to the most undeserving he makes a promise 
to bring back, but not just to bring back, to raise up in glory and bless. And so the words of the psalmist here echo the words of Deuteronomy 4. Speaking of God giving to Israel his statutes and rules. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? Whenever we call upon him, what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous? As all this law that I set before you today. What law are we talking about again? That law of love in covenant, God's determination to bring us into the fullness of joy through Jesus Christ. Even, even when we've gone very far, that word of command that erects a people and orders them according to his covenant cannot be undone just as he is determined to undo the ice of the season. Brothers and sisters, seasons of trial are going to change. Seasons of sorrow will be transformed to praise because his word is going to run very swiftly in your life. He's commanded his word. He has not dealt this way with anyone else but you. He has given a word of promise, a word of integrity, incapable of being undone. What a blessing. God has promised you not only life eternal, but the fullness of joy at his right hand. That cannot possibly be taken from you. This, then, is a celebration of the word of promise. Do you see how you and I must, we ought, we should, there's every reason to conform our life, to have a life that fits to such a God. Isn't he worthy of praise? He speaks to nature and things happen. He speaks and promise to you and he brings us back and he blesses us. We ought with all hearty thanks to praise him, but also to know and love and crave and live the Bible because it's there we find the image of God in Christ revealed and his great worthiness in love. Let's pray together. Blessed God, how we thank you. You are the God of love, and you are worthy of our praise. We confess, O Lord, how far short we have fallen of that glory, which ought to be continually radiating from the whole of our life and all our words. But we pray that even in our desperate weakness, temptation, and in moments of deep sin, that you would still, by your redeeming grace, magnify yourself as you have given to us a Savior, Christ the Lord. So bless us, we pray, that even as we come now to that table Jesus gave to his disciples, that we may taste that word of promise in another form. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.